Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm so glad to have you here. Today on the show, we are talking all things polyamory. But hey, monogamous folks don't feel like this isn't also for you. Regardless of relationship orientation, we all have a ton to learn about communication, boundaries, and living authentically from the polyamory community. And I have the perfect guest to guide us in this conversation. I share my interview with polyamory expert, relationship anarchist, and one of the main faces of polypages, Claire Travers. Claire and I talk about whether or not polyamory is right for you. We also dive into a very important question. Is polyamory queer? But first, today in sex. Consensual non-monogamy, polyamory, monogamish, relationship anarchy, swinging, open relationships, ethical non-monogamy, ethical sluts. What does it all mean? Before we get into my interview with Claire, let's just get a few terms straight. Or, I don't know about straight, like queer, like clear, sorry, clear. <laughs> well, you, you know what I mean. First of all, when we talk about consensual non-monogamy or polyamory, this is the practice of having multiple sexual and or romantic partners at the same time. And this is where all of the people involved are aware of this relationship and consent to it. Let me just like underpin consent. Everyone is aware and everyone consents to it. This can include but is not limited to polyamory, open marriages, open relationships, swinging, solo polyamory, and relationship anarchy. I know one of the terms that we hear quite often is swinging, and typically that is committed couples who consensually engage in extra relational sex for recreational purposes. As an example, in The Grinch with Jim Carrey, you know how like when there's the little Grinch and his parents who raised him are all throwing their keys into a bowl? Yeah, that was low-key a swinging party. Also, I want to share a few other terms that will really help us understand the lay of the land when it comes to talking about polyamory and consensual non-monogamy, and also some of the terms that Claire and I use in this interview. I think we do a pretty good job of unpacking all of those things, but just so that we're all on the same page. Now, the first term that I want to share is compersion. So compersion is the state of happiness, joy, or pleasure that comes from delighting in other people's happiness. Now, within polyamory, this specifically used to refer to positive feelings experienced when your lover is having a positive experience with one of their other lovers. And when we're talking about other lovers, quite often we'll talk about a metamor. So these are two people who share a partner, but are not romantically or sexually involved with each other. So for example, if your partner has a spouse, you and their spouse would be metamors. Just as a sidebar, all of these terms that I am sharing with you are from Polysecure uh, that came out in 2020 by Jessica Fern. I cannot recommend this book enough. It is excellent, excellent, excellent. And it starts off with this glossary of terms. Two more terms I want to share with you. The next one is mononormativity. So this was a term that was coined by Piper and Bauer in 2005 to refer to the social dominant assumptions regarding the naturalness and normalcy of monogamy, right? Where the political, popular, and psychological narratives typically present monogamy as superior, natural, or morally correct ways to do relationships. So similar to how we would talk about heteronormativity, 
mononormativity is the assumption that the only way to be in a relationship is when there are two people in it. The last term is polysaturated. So polysaturated is the point at which the thought of another relationship leaves one feeling more exhausted than excited. So when a polyamorous person has as many significant and insignificant others as they think they can handle, then they would call themselves polysaturated. Okay, now that we are all on the same page, the last thing I want to say before I pass it off to Claire and past Leah to have this conversation is that if you have questions about polyamory, about consensual non-monogamy, please send them my way. You can send them to me on Instagram at dr.leahtidy um, or also send in a voice message right here, either through Instagram or to the email at thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com. I'll also say, if you aren't already, follow Polly Pages on Instagram and TikTok. Like, they share amazing work all the time, and like, they do wonderful work. So I can't say enough about them and how excited I was to be able to talk to Claire. And now, take it away, Claire. So Claire, I'm super excited to have you here on the podcast today. Um, I have been following Polly Pages for quite a while, and like, I love like, the reels, the TikToks, all of it. So I'm going to read a brief description of how you described yourself, and I would love to hear you unpack that. So recently you posted saying that you are a relationship anarchist, a queer femme, and who uses polyamory as a lens to critique, process, and deconstruct the cultural norms which tell us who and how we should love as an extension of white, colonial, and patriarchal oppression. You could tell you're an academic. So unpack that for me <laughs> oh you chose the best quote as well first of all thank you so much for having me I'm really excited to be to be here um the love doctor it, <laughs> it feels very like late night radio to me and I love it it has so much joy um so the quote that you read was uh I think taken from the post when we hit 40,000 followers mm -hmm. and I was like this is a bit about me I'm not the only person behind Polly Pages but I, I am definitely like the face people recognize me from because I do all of the videos um and I think it's it's been an interesting journey from actively being non-monogamous as in not offering monogamy in my relationships to quite a, a political place which I think is what is reflected in that quote that you just chose so when I use the term relationship anarchist it, it's almost like I've taken the concepts that I I was using in non-monogamy and I've kind of taken them into other types of my relationships, like my friendships, uh, my business relationships, my casual relationships, everything, in a way that basically refuses to assimilate those into any kind of like norms. Any Anytime someone's like, oh, you should be performing this relationship in this way, a relationship anarchist is like, why? Why would I do that? Why would I do that? If it works for me, fantastic. But often we do those things just because that's what's expected and not really questioning it. Um, I am queer and I am femme uh, and I'm a cis woman. Um, and those obviously are about my sexual and my, my gender identity. Um, although I have recently sort of realized that like I'm a cis cisgendered woman and I've never really had to explain that in the way that people who are not cisgendered have to. So I've never done really a lot of like thinking about, about that label. But the queer one I use very intentionally because for me, um, using pansexual bisexual it, it fixes the label in a really specific way and I think there's a dynamism in the labels that we use and the identities that we have like it seems very strange to me that I would choose a label that works for that day and, and not necessarily 
for the rest of of the week or my or the year or my life and that's normal right like people are going to change so our relationships so how you identify your sexuality doesn't have to be a fixed place so I use the term queer in that way to kind of give myself and everyone else the ability to to use a label that's that's a little bit less specific um and I I think that's really helpful um and the polyamorous as like the polyamorous stance is a lens through which to critique social norms specifically the norm of monogamy or mononormativism mononormativism it's hard to say fast <laughs> um this I think is is a really important way of approaching a, a kind of radical anti-capitalist agenda but also just approaching an understanding of what oppression is so basically any so social norm um is oppressive to somebody who doesn't identify in that way or doesn't perform in that way right um you can't have a social norm unless you have something that's not normal to compare it to essentially so when monogamy is the norm any other type of relationship that is not a long-term committed monogamous relationship is either not real less valuable or shouldn't exist in the first place and I don't just mean non-monogamy in that you know I mean people that are divorced people that are intentionally single people who are childless, people who are deciding to have queer platonic relationships, queer people that are in monogamous romantic relationships are still considered, I think, not, uh, not as, as normal, quote, I'm doing air quotes for people on the podcast, um, under cishet mononormativism. So I kind of like lump all these things together, these concepts together. It does come, I think, from like a, this, this academic place. But for me, it feels very intuitive in like the way that I understand polyamory as a lens to to offer those critiques which I, I don't think that monogamy could, can critique itself in quite the same way <laughs> no I, I love that as well and it's something that we've you know talked about in this podcast of not only critiquing norms but also you know just having an awareness that um that our identities are going to shift and change over time and I really resonate with what you were saying about you know identifying as queer and it's something that for me, I've kind of recently started using that term for myself because bisexual, you know, I've been using that term since I was 12. But it's like, hmm, like it still is a part of who I am, but doesn't really sit with these other aspects. And like you said, it's a part of your political identity. It's about critiquing norms. It's about how are you questioning and asking why about these assumptions that we have. And so it feels more encompassing in that terms and kind of like you said, I, I think so often we feel like, oh, yes, I've, I understand my identity now. Now it is this and it will remain the same throughout my life. And you're like, well, what about later today or next week or a major life event happens? Right. There are there are those things that are changing, you know, doesn't devalue any part of that identity, but it actually adds richness and complexity to it that it continues yeah. to evolve. Like during pa the pandemic, everyone was having these major life events of like chaos and crisis, some people for the first time in their lives. I don't think that that is surprising that we've, we're seeing a lot of people uh, come into new understandings of who they are in that moment. Um, and it'd be very unfair to say, well, you used to be uh, using the term bisexual and now you can't, you can't use, use a different term. Mm -hmm. um, and as you said, I think queer also has this like label where it's like, it's not L and G and B and T and Q and I and A. It, when we we are, um, when, when we fight for one set of rights, we're essentially fighting on an, under an umbrella of, of fighting against an oppressive norm. And I'm not saying that everyone that, that uses the term queer does that, but that's the way that I use it. 
Mm. It's sort of like a, um, it, you know, if you know, you know, and if you don't know, then you can just be scared and wonder. Like queer, queer people will see the label and be like, okay, yeah, like I'm kind of getting it. Um, and people that don't understand that label, it, it, it's it's fine. You know, they yeah. can ask or they can they can not. Yeah, definitely. And we're going to talk more about queerness and polyamory kind of later on in this discussion. But I wonder, something that I kind of like to do in this podcast as well is kind of look at the micro and then look at the macro, right? So, you know, I know that like largely in like poly pages and in your work, it's all about critiquing norms and also like hosting like conversations for people to learn, to like educate themselves about different topics. But I also wonder about like that personal story, whenever you feel comfortable sharing, but like, you know, how you came to be who you are now and you said right before we we uh you know flipped on the recording that you're like you know i've been doing this for a long time i first started using the term polyamory and people are like what's that like what i don't yeah. even fully understand so tell me a little bit about you know claire what what's up with you how did you get to this point where you are now and such a, a voice and expert in the field <laughs> um i would call myself an expert but I would call myself someone that's that that has a lot of life experience um, and someone that obviously has an academic training and that's what I've bought to make poly pages. Um, in terms of like my journey, which I'm beginning to cringe over this term of like my polyamorous journey, but <laughs> it's kind of true, right? Because it's, it's not about the end point, it's about how you got there and there's so many different ways people get there. Um, for me, uh, outside of poly pages, I'm a humanitarian aid consultant. And that means that I travel a lot, like less now, but back in my 20s, I was traveling like all of the time. Um, and that just made monogamy this like completely ridiculous motion, like <laughs> so dumb. Like, oh, I'm going to go to a war zone for like 30 days, potentially longer. And like, you're just not going to hear from me. And, and we're all just going to like still cling to this, uh, this ridiculous life raft and like pretend that that this is this is a feasible or fair thing to ask of one another mm-hmm. um so I think this was really like my entryway and this is like nine years ago mm-hmm. right this is like a, a long like most of my adult life mm-hmm. um once I would taken monogamy like kind of off of the table as it were like it was just something I wasn't offering um and being really intentional about that and being really honest about that because I I honestly is very very important to me mm-hmm. um it just like became like oh okay I actually like this is actually intuitively how I understand relating to people it's not like when I'm with with one person in a relationship that I don't stop thinking about other people or I don't find like stop finding other people attractive or like I don't have desires to to form other connections I still have those but if I'm being honest with myself um I can't necessarily, I mean, I, I guess I could have uh, pretended that that didn't happen and, and uh, stayed, stayed in a monogamous relationship or formed a monogamous relationship, I, just, I should say. But I, I kind of realized that I don't have to do that. It was never a question of like, will polyamory work for me? It was more like a question of like, monogamy doesn't work for me. What else is there? Right. Yeah. So that was like my personal journey at the very beginning. I, and I was doing this, you know, in, in, uh, contexts that aren't American, aren't um, Eurocentric, aren't, aren't English speaking, which I think always surprises people because people assume it's a super white American thing. Um, but that wasn't my experience at all. 
and it wasn't until I was dating a white American for the first time that we were like, oh, we should like, write, like make a podcast. Like this would be a fun thing to do while I'm on mission or while he's in, you know, away at conferences or like whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's how Polly Pages was born as like a little baby podcast. And if you go and you listen to the early episodes, it has this like wonderful homemade quality of just like two people that love each other, like chatting about a text that they're discovering for the first time together. Because I was like seven years in or whatever, and I still hadn't read The Ethical Slut. And I was like, this is ridiculous. I should read it. <laughs> Let's record it. <laughs> and so that's how Polly Pages was born. And in the last year, it's really expanded, as you said, to be a platform that's larger than me and focuses specifically on the, the academia and the texts around non-monogamy and those critical conversations. Um, and now it, it has, uh, you know, a, a modest following and it is, I think, adding something to a conversation instead of me just sitting in and absorbing the conversation mm. behind a microphone. And that, that's been a really nice transition. Yeah. Like you said, it's like that starting from that personal like interest and being like, okay, maybe I should actually like read these books as everyone's like, you know, if you're a, I mean, use quote unquote, a good polyamorous person, well, you have to have read The Ethical Slut. You have to have read, you know, all these other texts, but fascinating to come to it and read it when you are, you already have that lived experience. And so you can kind of give or take like, oh, this is really resonating for me. Mm, Like let's, let's critique these other aspects that maybe aren't sitting well, or maybe that have evolved um, from there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think about how it's not necessarily an awareness. And I would say probably this is due to like socialization. It's not necessarily an awareness of the fact of like, aha, I am polyamorous. It's like monogamy is not working for me. Like this does not make sense with my lifestyle, with my desires, with everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is resonating for a lot of people. I think it has for a long time. But I think it's kind of coming to the surface now in a way where we are questioning those norms of monogamy. Like you said, mononormativity is, oh, I can't even say it quickly. <laughs> You're going to say mono, monocentrism. Yeah. If that, monocentrism. If that helps. That's a little bit easier. But mononormativity was a phrase coined by Eli Schaff, Dr. Eli Schaff, in an essay. And um, I think it's, it's a good, like it makes sense to me because it's about norms. But monocentrism also works. Uh, and it has a little sister, which is even harder to say, which is a matter normativity. Oh, no. And you, you leaned oh, no. into the microphone for that one. I did. <laughs> <laughs> which is the, the, norm, the normalization of like how romance specifically, a matter being like the love, how romance specifically functions. This notion of like romance as being a thing that is all encompassing and can only be applied between two people and uh, should should be the foundation for like a, a life partnership and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, but we could do a whole episode on these these terms if I'm honest. Yeah, absolutely. If, if people want to know more, I will definitely have lots of resources linked in the episode description as folks are now used to getting. I've always, I'm like bombarding them with resources. Um, but yeah, like I just, I think so often when we think about these these norms that don't work for us, um, for me, I, the way, the way that you just described that, I was like, oh, like I, I feel that so deeply where, you know, from a young age, I didn't have the language to describe that. I was like, huh, I feel like I'm just like doing relationships wrong. And I keep having these like desires and, you know, I just, I keep, I feel like I'm fucking it up always. I'm fucking it up. And I'm like, what, why is that happening? What's wrong with me? And it keeps being a reflection on that. And I think right. that's 
what our norms tell us that it's 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 an individual problem it's not a structural problem and so when i start to unpack that you know in my mid to late 20s so probably i don't know like four or five years ago when my partner and i first started having conversations around you know opening up our relationship and what that might look like it was like oh like everything just started to kind of make sense and all of these different moments in my life i was seeing them through this new lens and was like oh wait i i'm not the one that's messed up and i think that's something that has been really like powerful but it's also meant a lot of like unpacking of of, of like shame i think particularly and i think a lot of time with polyamory people are like is it just about sex? You're just like sexually insatiable. Um, and so particularly as someone who also identifies as bisexual, there's all of these things where I'm like, not everyone who's bi is polyamorous, but I am. So like, how do you, <laughs> so dealing with those things, I don't know. That's not really a question at all in there, but. No, I, I think what you're saying though res- will probably resonate with a lot of people because there are so many people out there that I think are finding themselves shaming themselves or being blamed by their partner and by everyone else for how badly they're doing their monogamous relationship and it will never once occur to them that maybe the problem is monogamy and not them Mm -hmm. I think we live in a culture where we scapegoat individuals instead of addressing systemic problems and this happens all the time this happens in every single social movement and every single uh, political movement that if you can't get it, you are the person that's wrong and you should change to adhere to, to the norms that we've decided are the most important um, instead of having the tools to you know, make norms for yourself and live a life that feels fair. You know what it kind of reminds me of actually, because I've been watching, uh, re-watching all of the old episodes of RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> and in there, like every single drag queen has a story about when they came out and they, they had this period where they, you know, they didn't feel... Uh, like like they were like they were normal they mm. didn't feel and like I, th- I think a lot of of people from that generation went through a phase where they tried really hard to be straight because yeah. they were like this is this is what's normal and if I can't do it I'm the problem instead of being like or there are many ways that people have have sexual identities and gender identities and you the one that you're being asked to adhere to is just not for you mm-hmm. um and I I feel like a lot of people haven't quite uh extended that into like relationship practices and relationship norms like if you're struggling with monogamy it probably isn't that you're just a shitty person it probably is that this is a model that doesn't work for you intuitively and you're being asked to compromise in order to do it and maybe the question is like why yeah definitely you know that brings up an interesting reflection that um i was talking to my students a few weeks ago um about um the whole module is about diverse expressions of sexualities so we had an entire class i entitled it as more than monogamy and kind of gave them kind of a, a brief overview of different terms and ideas around consensual non-monogamy and polyamory one of the students asked you know if someone is you know like a chronic cheater like they're always cheating should they just, you know, become polyamorous? And it uh, it just kind of rankled for me. I was like, huh, how do I answer this? So I'm wondering, I mean, I gave, I, I think the best answer I could in that moment, but I really want to know your thoughts. If people were to ask you like, ah, oh, like I just find myself cheating on people all the time. Am I just polyamorous? Like what's, what's going on in, in that maybe idea there? I mean, I would love to know what advice you gave. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, in that moment, I was like, that's a great question. And I, I started talking about our ideas around relationship norms. 
And I'm like, you know, we have to think about our relational orientation because what do we understand by cheating? That's what I started by talking to them around. And I'm like, is this like what we understand as an emotional affair? Was it flirting with someone? Like, what do we mean? I think we have to unpack what we mean by cheating before we can then understand maybe this is going to work for that person. And it's going to be a very individual experience. So we can't just say, aha, all the cheaters in the world, you're just polyamorous. I'm like, uh, like that's yeah. not what's going on. Now, I completely agree with you. And I know I'm also aware that there are people that might have had personal experiences where somebody cheated on them and then used polyamory as a as a like a justification for 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 breaking their agreements. Um, so to be clear, you can cheat in polyamory. You can cheat in any relationship. And what you're doing when you're cheating is you're essentially uh, revoking the their ability to consent because there are either implicit or, or explicit agreements about that relationship. The probably the most common one in monogamy is that you won't sleep with somebody else. This doesn't have to be made explicit. Uh, I would say, please make it explicit. I think that would do a lot of the work, right? But a lot of the times people have these implicit understandings of the relationship that they are consenting to be in. And when you operate in a way that breaks that agreement, you are revoking their ability to consent to that. So you can do that in any relationship. When we talk about the history of polyamory, and the reason why we have the term consensual non-monogamy is because for some reason people have been like obsessed with making sure that we don't get confused for cheaters, right? <laughs> like obsessed with it. Like, no, no, but we, we're not the people that cheat on people. We're doing this consensually. We're doing this ethically. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that that's a bit of a strange thing to center an entire subculture around. If I'm if I'm honest, um, so I guess that like my, the answer is complex, right? And I, I think you are along the right the right lines for this person. Is that like when when you actually boil down what cheating is, you have to make the agreements in your in your uh, relationship explicit, and any breaking of that is cheating. Um, and it doesn't have to be just being sexually promiscuous with people that you haven't previously consented to or, or don't have an agreement around. But you can cheat in polyamory. But maybe if you are constantly failing to uh, to sort of perform monogamy in the way that is expected of you, and to the point as well where, like, I mean, when when you break that agreement, you're you're also doing damage to yourself, right? Like, when if you cheat on somebody else, like, you're also you're like you, you're you're disempowering yourself in that in that exchange as well. Um, no one comes out well. That's what I'm saying. Then then maybe there is some questions here around like. Why am I constantly unable to perform it in this way? Um, and maybe there's another model that actually I can like have this discussion mm-hmm. and like have this above board. Having said that, I've spoken to many people and they're like, I'd rather that you just like didn't tell me. Mm-hmm. Like the people that have told me outright, like I prefer that you just cheat on me. And I'm like, okay, well, that's that sounds like a you problem. Like you should go away and think about that. Because I was like really <laughs> weird. talk to someone about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't, I think if you're still figuring all this stuff out, like just, just stop dating. Like, that's what, that's what I did every time I was like having questions around this. It's like, Hmm. this is probably a good time to take a step back and actually think about this. So yeah, it's complex. And I definitely don't want to say that like all cheaters are polyamorous. I do think that some people that are doing monogamy, monogamy badly, or even some people that are doing polyamory badly, they're still polyamorous. Uh, just like some people that, that are doing monogamy badly are monogamous. They're just really like going through it or like don't care or like any number of other reasons Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's such excellent advice too to like 
take a step back. Like when you are grappling with something new and you know that you're like, okay, like I have some work to do to unpack this for myself. And if you are in a relationship in that moment, what damage, intentional or unintentional, may occur as you are working through this. And so if you're able to take a step back from dating in that moment, I feel like that's, I, I yeah, it's interesting. I'm thinking as like a, a, as a podcast, I'm like, yeah, we do like offer advice on my podcast, but it's more so like having these interesting conversations. But I don't think that's advice you would hear very often of like, maybe you should just stop dating, work on yeah. yourself and then think about what that's going to look like moving forward. Because I don't feel like that's a very, like, maybe popular answer. People are like, no, I want to keep dating, but I will unintentionally damage myself or others. And knowing that that's not, you know, you're not giving yourself the time or the space to actually go through that in a way that's going to be, I was going to say productive, but it sounds so capitalist when I say productive. But do you know what I mean? Like a way to... Constructive. Constructive. There we go. Constructive is nice. Um, yeah. yeah definitely and I've taken so when I I decoupled a couple of years ago from all my partnerships and I was like I immediately started dating and I was like you know I, I met this amazing woman and um, I'm beginning to develop really genuine feelings but I know that I'm not I've got no business dating I know I am still hurting I know I am still dealing with this I know I am depressed I know I'm still getting my medication right I'm just like I have no business getting in other people's lives when I'm like this right and so I stopped dating for like a year and it, it was the most constructive year that I've had um it doesn't surprise me that our society very rarely gives that advice because the whole point of mononormativity is that you are endlessly interning people to be your life and soul mm -hmm. so taking any time off of that is like a big no-no especially if you're a woman because you're gonna hit 30 and not have any kids mm, um heaven forbid and so <laughs> I know, right? How dare you? Um, and so, so yeah, it's not advice you're going to hear very often, but uh, maybe that's why you need to hear it, right? Like, you don't have any business dating, stop dating. Yeah. You are going to hurt people and you're going to hurt yourself, but like, you are going to hurt other people that like, they deserve better than to be your therapy session. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, listeners, I wish you could have seen Claire's face in that moment of just like, stop dating, deadpan listen to me stop dating i think you're so right though right it, it talks about those norms of like if you are taking any time off of this like pursuit heaven forbid you're doing work on yourself or your career or anything else it was like if you are stepping away from this ultimate goal that we are all striving towards then you are a failure in some sense so like telling people to be like actually you know it, it probably will be better in the long run for you as an individual your your life happiness whatever to take that constructive time to do that. Um, yeah. So maybe unpopular advice, but advice that needs to be like spread more widely, you know? Right. It's also, by the way, advice I want to extend to uh, a bugbear of mine, which is like polyamorous couples for the first time opening up their relationship. Mm -hmm. Stop dating. Like just, just, if you still have veto power, if you still have rules, don't date. Like you're clearly not ready. And it's kind of the same as someone being like, I have absolutely no anger management skills. I think I'm going to date. And you'd be like, well, no, this is a dangerous person to date, right? Or like, oh, I have not, I have not ever, you know, interrogated any of the things that I want even once, but I'm going to go and figure that out in a relationship. You'd be like, obviously this person should be dating. Yeah. And I feel like it's the same in, in baby polyamorous couples where they're like, well, we've, you know, we've read the ethical slot. Let's give it a, give it a whirl. And it's like, I'm, I'm always the third, right? Cause I'm, I'm so polyamorous in that, like, 
my partnerships are secondary to my relationship with myself and like I'm often find myself like the, the new partner and I'm the one that gets vetoed <laughs> I'm the one that gets like that gets like oh we changed our minds oh actually she's uncomfortable oh actually he's not sure and I'm like then why have you wasted my time like my time's very bad I will invoice you I will invoice you yeah, you should. Yes. For my time, for my uh, my wisdom, for all of this work that I have done, you know, like mm-hmm. you should you should be paying for that. I think that leads really nicely in, into this uh, this conversation we're going to have around: Is polyamory queer? And mm-hmm. when I ask this to my students, and I'm like, you know, are you just automatically queer if you are polyamorous? And the initial response from my students was a resounding yes. Yes, if you are polyamorous, you are queer. Oh, your face is excellent right now. Okay. Oh my gosh, I'm shocked. I'm literally shocked. Yeah, it was fascinating. There are a lot of queer students in my class, I will say, but it was very interesting to like, that was the initial yes. They're like, yes, because this is a non-normative way to be in relationships. Like unequivocally, it is queer. I was like, oh, interesting. So I asked them to kind of unpack that a bit further, but- I'll I'll pass it to you first. Is polyamory queer? It depends. (laughs) I think it's really hard. I I actually, you know, now you've given the explanation, you can, and obviously you can tell your students to come from academia. Like queer theory is basically just like a a refusal to assimilate to a norm. It's, it's a, it's a subversive relationship dynamic. It's, it's going against norms as, as your, uh, as your students have rightly said, I get it. But I think there'd be many that would balk at the idea that being polyamorous is like part of the queer umbrella, right? Because you can do polyamory and be like the straightest, most conservative couple (laughs) in the world, right? And like he has a girlfriend and a wife and she has a, a husband and a boyfriend and they never have any kind of group play and they all perform, you know, gender and sexual roles as they should and should in quotation marks, Mm -hmm. um, and it's all very normative. They just have plus extras. And I see this a lot. And I also see this as being the thing that the media cater towards because obviously mm-hmm. the media uses what I've coined as the monogamous lens in that the thing that is appealing is the thing that is most close to monogamy, right? Like if you think about monogamy plus one, like a closed triad, okay, that's, that's an acceptable form of polyamory. Yeah. But that could be so, so straight. Is like that could be like that could be two super straights in an open marriage would be technically polyamorous, and that would obviously be so far from queer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's why I was shocked. I thought there'd be more of a like a mix, like a 50-50 split, but no, right, right down the middle. Yeah. That would have been better. It but was good. not everyone. Yeah, everyone. And I mean, like, not everyone like wrote in the chat or like put their hand up right away. They're like, yes, Leah, it's for sure queer. But it was interesting how. You know, like sometimes when you ask a provocative question like that, um, there's a bit of a moment of hesitation and there wasn't, which I found so fascinating. And then as we started to unpack that, I just said, I'm like, well, why, why are you thinking that? And then someone had that, you know, that questioning along the similar lines as yours. And you're like, well, like who is involved in this relationship? And, you know, what are the dynamics actually looking like? What kind of power is playing into that and like you said like and I know you've shared this on uh, poly pages as well it's kind of like that closed triad is the one that we see is the one that is the most normalized like you said it's kind of like monogamous plus 
monogamish, like kind of along those lines. So people are like, oh, I can kind of understand. Like, yeah, I'd love to have, and people, you know, I'm using bunny ears right now, like a piece on the side or something like that. And that's how it's positioned as this very much. Because the couple is still intact. So Mm -hmm. in an open, this is the other one that often gets a lot of airtime is like an open relationship where like the the married couple is intact, but they are like, somehow so enlightened that they can have like other dalliances which are purely sexual and cannot be romantic or like swinging sometimes gets a lot of airtime as well it's because all of those are models of polyamory that don't necessarily get to the foundation of what mononormativism is like it doesn't it doesn't actually target the root of monogamy it's it's taking a, a lens uh that says that monogamy is still valuable and monogamy is still important and like that is that's what's through the lens right like Mm -hmm. this is why it's valuable is because it's it still protects the monogamous couple in a way um yeah and you can you can do that in a way that i think would then be very violent if you were to then use the term queer because the label of queer as i've said in this earlier is is a political one Mm -hmm. and it's used to make safe spaces for people who are traditionally oppressed by sexual and gender norms. Mm-hmm. So to then, if you were to then use, and to be fair, I've never met somebody who who would do it this way. But but if you were to allow allow quote unquote allow people to to just by virtue of the fact that they have more than two people in a relationship, start to you know use the spaces and the the movements for queer folks. I think that would that could be quite violent because those are the people that like it's it's this age-old question of like what is a safe space and how do we protect it and who's a, who's quote-unquote allowed in or not but I definitely feel like it could be a very it could be a very violent use of the word queer to kind of be like well I have a girlfriend as well as my wife so I'm queer and that would be like but you're a straight you're a straight cisgendered man <laughs> like I, why are you here it's kind of like I still sometimes well and, and bear, bear in mind like I'm bisexual you're bisexual but I'll still sometimes go to a club and see like uh mono heterosexual cisgender performing couple and be like do a little bit of a double take mm-hmm. and it changes I wish it didn't but like if I'm being completely honest I'm still like figuring out how to make the safe space feel safe for me and also I, I realize like as a femme I perform I come across straight I have to be like I, I cannot be coy when I'm hitting on women I have to be like <laughs> I like you but in a way where like I like you I am and I feel I like, like I like like you <laughs> can I kiss you is my go-to <laughs> I just ask people out right <laughs> yeah um, so I, I think basically what I'm trying to say is that like you saying something is queer in that it aligns with queer theory and uh, is one thing saying something is queer and then using that to access spaces and movements that aren't necessarily like like in a way that might not necessarily keep them as safe spaces that is I think concerning and sometimes that is the reason why people balk at the idea that polyamory makes someone queer because I mean it, it doesn't they could still be you know because not only just you know not not ordinarily have access to that space but could also be people who are actually actively campaigning or like oppressive to the people in that space mm-hmm. there's nothing inherent in polyamory that makes you liberal or uh democratic or lefty or like whatever labels that you that you'd imagine people would have yeah it's it's an interesting uh point that you bring up right and it's kind of moving from that theoretical to like that individual piece right like have you done the work of 
you know, looking at oppressive norms, understanding your own positionality in the world and subjectivity and being like, okay, like, what does that mean if I enter into spaces feeling like I am entitled to these spaces if I have not done that work? And that's something um, I know listeners, I've had a lot of, you know, bisexual femme folks listening who are in straight passing relationships being like, how do I go into spaces and feel safe? You know, how do I go into spaces and be like, I'm like, I'm also bisexual or I'm also queer, um, but here I am with my, you know, male presenting partner, whatever that might be. And a big part of that is like, okay, well, yes. And if you have attractions to multiple folks, multiple genders, absolutely claim being bisexual, but that doesn't automatically give you a pass into safe spaces, particularly if you are in a partnership that is straight passing, where what kind of work has that partner done or partners done in that space as well? Like I think there's, I can understand, I had a, um, a good friend of mine to come into class a few weeks ago um, and they identify as, you know, a lesbian woman. And we were talking about the tensions between, you know, bisexual women and lesbian women. And I think a lot of that is around the not being able to pass in certain spaces and so knowing that you can be safe in almost any space whereas for lots of folks that isn't that you have to go to these places that have been set up in a way that you know they are safe and and upholding that safety within it Mm. yeah yeah what what i will say is that i do think that bisexual like bisexual erasure and biphobia um which let's be clear like when we talk about like bi erasure some people talk about that as a bi privilege that you can pass being the privilege, which I disagree with. But both of these ideas are based on this the, are based on misogyny. It's based mm-hmm. on this, this idea that that the the complexity of a woman is not possible. Women are not able to have these rich internal tapestries, uh, and if they are, then the um, the inability of the bisexual woman to simply choose is somehow a personal reflection on them. In a way that, I mean, I'm not saying that, bi, that bisexual, like by bi men in quotation marks don't also experience this, but I do feel like it's it's really aggressively terrible towards bisexual women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like once you start to like, I mean, then you could say, well, there's plenty of like misogynistic, like, you know, lesbian women in, in, in a, a safe space, quote unquote, safe space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think it's it, it's not about making the spaces that we already exist as accommodating as possible to as many people as possible. I don't think that that's the point. I think the point is making more spaces. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like just if if uh, if you know if you're finding that the that the spaces are um, not working for you, make a space. Mm. Um, and if other people need that, they will they will come. Build it, they will come. Especially now that we're running events as Polly Pages. I'm kind of realizing like online, you can run a lot of accessible, cost-efficient, regular events. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is one form of safe spaces, especially if people aren't out, right? Like you can't physically go to, to, to a safe space if you are not yourself out, um, either as, you know, um, trans, bisexual, polyamorous, like whatever it is that, that, you're, not, that you're not out about. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the places that you can do that safely, I think, is online, which is why Polypage, one of the reasons why Polypage's events are, are always digital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a huge part as well where, you know, we don't have to get into how uh, 
messed up different social media platforms can absolutely be, but also the amount of community um, and resources that people can find on these online spaces, particularly in terms of accessibility. And I think about this a lot from living in Canada of the, you know, the split between rural and urban environments and just the vast inequity in terms of like, do you even have a physical space that you can go to? And sometimes that online space is the only one where you truly feel safe or seen or, or so I, I really appreciate the having as many resources as possible. Like amazing if you can have that physical space, but at least if there's a digital one, then you can like learn maybe in the safety or comfort of your own home and then think about what that might look like and manifest into, into your, I don't know, physical, real life. How do we, I don't know. I spend so much time online now. I'm like, what is real? Yeah. What is real? Yeah. We're all, we're all part avatar at this point. Um, (laughs) but one of the things that I often get asked about is like, how do I meet other polyamorous people? And unfortunately, if you're not, if you're not also queer in some way, um, you are going to struggle because a lot of the mm-hmm. places where I have met other polyamorous people are queer friendly spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's also like this double-edged sort of like, well, if we're going to, you know, p- pretty extremely like exclude polyamorous people from those spaces, but that's the spaces they're most likely to find people that are also uh, thinking about relationships in this way or questioning norms in this way. Mm-hmm. then we kind of do a disservice to those people yeah um so it's you know it's it's tough but then I've also I haven't actually met as I said it's all very hypothetical because I don't think I've ever met somebody that was like yes me and my my straight husband and I am also straight would like to come to your queer party please like I've, I've actually never met that person <laughs> <laughs> I want to come to your queer party we are straight but like right I mean there, there's a reason why the singing community is sort of separate from from the polyamorous community if you think about it in that way um yeah because that's you know that that as as i said there was there was a need and the community came up around that need and here in the uk actually the swinging community is much older than the polyamorous community Hmm. Uh, it has it has a really like rich and uh storied history and like it is really well established um same same with like the kink scene in the uk is like really well established and the polyamorous scene is, is still sort of like in its first baby steps of kind of walking but where is it walking out of it's walking out of swinging and kink communities yeah i wonder to kind of thinking about like wrapping up our conversation something that i get asked quite often from people is you know is polyamory right for me right and just even like starting that questioning and i uh, i know we've touched a bit on like you know quite often, at least from the people who like send me their questions, quite often it is people who are in straight passing relationships and then are wondering what that might look like. But I wonder before people start going down that path of dating, of vetoing people, of, you know, creating really toxic or damaging spaces and creating these, these really strict hierarchies, like what would you start? I mean, I don't know, like advice on that's really hard, but something to have in mind, like is polyamory right for me? Where do you begin? Mm. I think I would reframe the question for you and be like, why is, why am I questioning monogamy? What mm-hmm. is it about monogamy that I'm, that I'm struggling with or that I'm questioning or that I'm wandering around? Uh, because I think that that will really get to the, the heart of what it is that you're looking for out, out of changing your, let's imagine you're in an existing relationship. 
uh, because that's that's the premise that you've set out here but also I mean even if you are unpartnered and you're thinking about this it's like well if you could draw out your dream like the most intuitive way that you would relate to somebody like what would that look like mm-hmm. um I think that is that's more that's it's it's kind of like instead of trying on a size 10 let me try on a size 8 and then you're like no neither of these are my size that's not really the point of of questioning monogamy the the point of questioning monogamy is that you you get stuff tailored to what you want Mm. so I don't think it's necessarily like oh this is a bit loose or this is a bit tight I think I'm going to try the the next size of relationship and that happens to be polyamory because it's everywhere right now Mm -hmm. um that's like a really bad way of going about finding something that fits for you right it is the way that we do it but I don't think it's necessarily the best way we do, to possibly do that um if you do have veto rules and stuff as I said please don't date like you're just not ready because there are, it's still based on this idea that you have to control your partner that that your relationship might uh break um and unfortunately it might like that's the thing you can't yeah. just like change your relationship structure and expect it to, to be perfect like you can't go into that and, and expect that your relationship will be the one that stays. And I think a lot of couples that I'm seeing opening up, a lot of people I know that are like trying out, they will do anything to protect their initial relationship. And then what that means is that anything else is, is expendable, mm-hmm. which is a shitty way to treat other people. Yeah. Like it's a crap, that's a crappy way to operate. Um, you have to go into it with the, with the understanding that your relationship might change and might become uh well m- might not be the thing you actually want by the end of it mm. might break might like any number of things could happen it's a bit like if you went from from seeing living with somebody every day and then you were like okay I'm gonna go overseas for six months and you just did it you would have to know in the back of your mind that this might be a difficult transition and that the relationship w- might change irre- irre- irrevocably irre- irreparably yeah. <clears throat> yeah you have to go into it knowing that your relationship might change irreparably or that it might it might have to end or it might have to be put on pause uh the idea of going into polyamory and like uh, doing anything possible to protect your relationship then don't like it, it that's just not that's just not gonna work um and you know it 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 will inevitably, what will end up happening is that inevitably you'll have a bad first experience of polyamory because it's the first time you're doing this and you're completely uh, completely new to it and like haven't really done any of the difficult work around things like jealousy and self-esteem and, and concepts of ownership and control and trust. And then you'll have a bad experience and you'll be like, well, I tried polyamory once and now I'll never try it again because it went badly. And it's like, okay, how many times did you try monogamy? <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. all right <laughs> and then it gets a bad rep so it's like yeah. it's, it's a really tough one but I, I just I mean time time is the thing that you both have and don't have right so like yeah. use it wisely I guess that, that's it's hard to give advice because I've also never been in a relationship that was opening up like I just have never put myself in that position but I, I have been the person that's I've frequently been the person where like we've been dating for six months I'm really getting into this. I all of a sudden I I'm getting vetoed, or uh, the wife is is demanding to meet me, and I don't want to do that. Or like, uh, or they or they get pregnant, and then I'm like I'm out. Uh, or or they get worried I might get pregnant, and like because we're at that age now where everyone's having kids, and that's like a whole extra thing. To it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you as someone. Uh, yep, yeah, 
who has uh, two male partners and recently took out my IUD. I, I, yep, I, I know. That's a whole other kettle of fish where I'm like, yep, thank goodness I'm a sex educator so we can talk about contraception. Yes. But it's, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate how you reframe that and I think that just comes right back to encompassing is it queer is it not you're like have you done the work of questioning these you know these monogamy like norms and structures and if you haven't done that then you know you're it's it's going to be a messy process Um, and I think there's a real fear around like you said losing or breaking a partnership and when we spend so much of our media and stories are telling us that that's the most important thing in our lives. That can be a very scary thing for people yeah. to quote unquote give up or to risk in some way. Right. So. Yeah. The sunk cost fallacy. And I, I guess like before we end, I just want to say like, uh, if things change, like that's good. Right. I really want to add like a counterweight for this, right. You're mm-hmm. meant to change. That's the point of living for nearly a hundred years now in modern industrial times. Right. You're meant to change. You're not meant to be like, okay, mid twenties, nailed it. That's me for life, right? That's not. That's not the fucking point. The point is that relationships are meant to change you, and then you know those change, those relationships may no, no longer suit you. If you think about it like this, like you probably have a friend that you were super close with in like college or high school, and you guys were like, you got each other. You guys knew what the other person was going to say before they even said it. And you guys grew a huge amount during those formative years. And maybe there was like a shed bond. Maybe there was a trauma. Maybe there was something that was really hard. Maybe you both took the same class with the same creepy professor. Mm. There is a lot of shared history. And now you're thinking about that person and you're like, oh, I haven't phoned them in a while. But you don't think, oh, what a failed relationship. What a waste of my time. What a completely like useless use of my years. No, you're like, that was a great friendship. And like the fact that I no longer speak to them on a daily basis, the fact that we might not even be friends anymore, doesn't mean that all of the time I spent with this person is completely null and void. Mm-hmm. So why would we ever apply that kind of standard to our romantic partnerships? Oh, if, if, if this only ends because one of us dies, like that's the only positive outcome out of this relationship? No, <laughs> you're meant to change. And if that change involves like you guys no longer being romantic or you guys no longer even being on speaking terms, like, yeah, that there'll be pain because change hurts. But like, that's, that's not a reason to not to do something. That's not a reason to, to try really hard to just like not rock the boat. Like the point is to get wet. That's the whole point. (laughs) I love that. I will, I will leave listeners on that note. The point is to rock the boat and get wet. I'm kind of on many yeah. levels. I am, I am very into that. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode, I'm talking to queer artist and doula, Simone Blaze. If you have a question, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com or message me right on Instagram at dr.leahtidy. You can also check me out on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like what you're hearing, hey, leave a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.